Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're focusing on the soil health principles that so many of our guests encourage growers to adopt and where it's so important for us to first understand our context, knowing what plants and animals flourish in our specific environments. From there, we work to not disturb the soil, reducing and eliminating both mechanical and chemical disruption. Next, we focus on armoring the soil by keeping it covered at all times, as well as keeping a living root in the soil to feed that soil biology. Then we add diversity, including diversity of plants, insects, microbes, wildlife, and finally adding livestock to the land. From understanding water and mineral cycling to how energy flows, Monty says the practices may vary from location to location, but the principles remain the same. On the Aggie Merge podcast, we strive to bring content that helps growers understand how they can adopt, improve, and regenerate their soils. After all, soil really is the foundation of the work we're doing, and it's also the life work of so many of our podcast guests. Some of our guests have had major epiphanies when it comes to soil health. And the great thing is, They put their money where their mouth is and share what they've learned. This podcast is meant to whet your appetite by revisiting some of the great guests we've had and to understand how they've shifted their paradigms, how they've come to the conclusion that adopting these changes were and are necessary in our production systems. We've picked out some great highlights with Dr. Dwayne Beck from Dakota Lakes Research Farm, conservationist Jay Fuhrer, entomologist Dr. John John Tooker, Aaron Martin, founder of Conscientious Ag Solutions, and Dr. Alan Williams from Understanding Ag. These folks are a powerhouse of knowledge. So let's jump right in. We start off with Dr. Dwayne Beck from Dakota Lakes Research Farm. Dr. Beck's work on developing and promoting diverse no-till cropping systems plays an important role in allowing producers to dramatically improve their profitability while also protecting soil and water resources, enhancing wildlife habitat, reducing net carbon dioxide emissions, improving air quality, and having other positive impacts. Here's Dr. Beck. The thing I've always strived to do is to tell people they have to have a water cycle that operates similarly to what it did in the native system. And then the ET term, uh, there's consumptive use, which is basically what happens to all your water, where does it go? Uh, The stuff that comes off of your land as vapor comes either out of there as transpiration, which is the T part, part that goes through a plant and the E part is evaporation and in nature very little evaporates from the soil it is utilized and it goes through the plant so I the take the E out of ET comes down to when uh, if we're talking about eastern Colorado which you were on the last podcast I guess um, 
did a lot of work there with Randy Anderson at, when he was director at the Akron uh, USDA station there. And I kept telling him he didn't have enough residue. He wasn't keeping enough residue on the land because it's that mat of residue or that duff layer is the first uh, way you take the evaporation out because evaporation makes you no money. And it causes some other bad things to happen actually in terms of salinity and, and stuff. So that layer of residues, if you don't have enough residue, you can't, you cr can't really make the function, the system function like it should. If you go into any natural ecosystem other than a desert, uh, the soil is always totally covered. And farmers have seen that layer, surface layer as being a problem. And, and I, you know, a lot of times when people are here and we, we go around the farm, they're just amazed at the level of residue that we maintain. And I continue to say, I think I've got it on somebody's video, somebody that was here one day, but I, you know, I, I'm saying residue is your friend, not your enemy. It, it's a little bit like the finding Nemo thing. You know, it's, it's you know, um, uh, fish are friends, not food, right? So your residue is your friend and, and maintaining Maintaining that residue lets you take that loss of water out, and then you can use the rest of it, and then you start start building the system. And in Colorado, the problem was lack of diversity in their system. They were doing wheat summerfowl, similar to here. I mean, the, the things they were doing when we started with things like wheat and summerfowl were or maybe continuous weed at times for a little while, but um, they couldn't do the diversity because they didn't have they didn't have the didn't have the water, but they didn't have the water because they didn't have the diversity. It's almost a, a trick question type thing, and and <clears throat> so the first thing you have to concentrate on is getting the residue up, and then you then you then you have the water to start doing things. Now you flip that around to where you go to the eastern part of the United States, where your precipitation exceeds your evapotranspiration type thing um, in your crop systems. That's where the cover cropping and all these things come in to try to increase the water use uh, from transpiration so it doesn't get to be a problem in terms of excess water. Because if you have excess water, obviously that causes problems too. So, so talk a little bit. You hinted there on the salinity part of E out of ET, and I think that's that's really interesting. First off, if you reduce your E, you need less applied irrigation water. Therefore, you're applying less salts with that irrigation water to the soil. That's that's definitely a benefit. But I think you were referring more about how salts and water move through the soil differently to evaporate versus moving through roots uh, to transpire. What, can you dive into that a yeah, little further? Yeah, and the other, the other part of that, the other part of that thing is macropores. So once you start no-tilling and you get a, you know, you take a natural system. And I asked this to a, of a guy the other day on the, on the telephone, is if you do tillage, um, he was from Colorado, by the way, 
But if you're doing if you're doing tillage, which he still was, I said it, it when it rains and you walk in a tilled field, how deep do you sink? And he said, well, as deep as I did tillage, <laughs> which is you know it's an obvious thing. Everybody goes, well, yeah, I'd sink down to where the tillage layer is. Well, that means all your water has stayed at the surface, and then that water evaporates from the surface, and the salinity stays on the surface. And if you have macropores, the water goes down the macropores and soaks in from the side. And, and then if the roots take it out, those, that salinity stays down there. If, if, um, if you leave it up at that surface, then, then it's, it's gonna leave the salinity at the top. If you exceed how much water you have and don't use it, then it starts to move sideways and goes down the hill taking the salts with it and then and then they they come back to the surface and evaporate off of that surface the water evaporates and the salts are there and people will go in and, and till those salty spots and that's the worst thing you can do and because that just increases the amount of evaporation in that salty spot and makes it saltier so um, you know they have to dry that up up the hill somewhere and, and prevent that water from from moving sideways down in there. And it all it all really comes from you know looking at how the, the natural system works and 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 try to mimic that that those cycles. I I don't think long term we can do it without perennials in the system because we don't go deep enough. And you know, our annual crops just don't get deep enough, even if we do cover crops, we just don't get the depth out of it. Our, our tall grass prairie stuff here, which we do have it, you have, you have more of it than we do, but our tall grass prairie roots will go seven or eight feet very easily. And, and I know that because I put a frost-free drinker in. You have a solar one, I have one of those heat sink ones that use the soil heat to keep them from freezing but you have to bury it seven foot deep in order to do that. And so when I dug the pit to put it in, I had, I had grass roots all the way down going past that seven foot area. Another power hitter in the lineup is conservationist Jay Fuhrer. Jay's approach to solving the problems of soil health is, as he says, doing most of his work with a spade in a field with his clients. From cover crops to water cycling, Jay has it covered. Oh, and don't miss this important quote. Jay says, diversity is the holy grail to go after. Here's Jay. And I think that land ethic, that transfer, um, is really what made the difference. And then when I started working, Monty, in, in more of a um, uh, farmer client atmosphere, I did most of my work uh, at the end of a field with a spade and the end gate down a pickup with the client. And that's where I did most of it. And I think um, initially it was so frustrating for me uh, because I treated symptoms. And I didn't know I was treating symptoms at the time. <clears throat> and so I would install all these uh, waterways in our cropland and diversions, et cetera, because basically the water was just running off. And I didn't really understand why. You know, if it rained an inch, we didn't necessarily get an inch in the, in the ground by no means. 
So I would spend my summers building all these waterways and I could keep a contractor pretty busy. And, and there was a lot of demand for it because there was a lot of it. And we were simple crop rotations. We were full tillage, no cover on the ground, no cover crops, uh, really no livestock integration to speak of and, and no diversity. Uh, and I think that's kind of how it started. And then it was a slow evolutionary process. I'd like to say I picked up on it in one or two days and man, I was there, but that's not true. <laughs> it took some time. And, and I, would, uh, I would contact people that had pieces of the puzzle kind of understood, um, you know, whether it was um, a Don Rykowski at ARS Morris, Minnesota on carbon, or whether it was a Dwayne Beck on cropping systems at Pure South Dakota, all these different people, I would contact them and I would say, could you train me? Could you teach me? And, and to their credit, every one of them said yes. And, and so it was a self-education and uh, being mentored by others, a combination of these things where I started to slowly go around the corner from treating symptoms to looking at the problem. So that's just a quick synopsis of kind of how I got started. But a lot of my change was driven out of frustration. And because I knew these things were not things that happened routinely on my dad's farm, because it was run very meticulously. And, and um, not that these people weren't, but now we had progressed further and our carbon levels had dropped further, uh, made this very difficult to hold that fragile eco ecosystem together. And so that, that was kind of the, the beginning uh, of the process. So that that's an interesting point you made right there. It's kind of that slow degradation process. It's really over some, a generation or two. And because it happens so slowly, is it harder for people to discover that what they're doing is the cause of it? Do you think that's one of the drivers for continuing to do what grandpa did? Is because there, there isn't much doubt, Monty. I think that's, I think it's unintended consequences. And we go down a road with what we perceive to be best management practices, et cetera. And then we find out over time that yes, some of these definitely are, but some are, are not able to stand alone and they need additional support in terms of functioning on an ecosystem. And, and for us, I'll give you a good example. Uh, in the 80s, if I would ask one of my farmer clients, <clears throat> let's just say it, it rained an inch. And, and so I'd, I'd ask them, how much rain did you get? Oh, you know, we got 9,500s or, or we got 105. You know, everything was in hundreds because it was critical. We just always so close to a drought. And, and after we got down the road, you know, where we changed a lot of this around, we put cover on the ground. So we, now we had cover, we started to get a little more diversity. We started getting the no-till systems. We started looking at, uh, God forbid, a cover crop because initially our thoughts were, well, they're okay for you, but they're not for us. And so we started looking at all these things and, and I think that really started to change. And then when it would rain an inch or more or less, and you'd say to that same person, how much rain did you get? The answer became all of it. 
that's a different answer because now we weren't letting it run off anymore. You were just and, lucky because that, that cloud hung out over your spot, your farm longer than uh, the neighbor. Uh, that was uh, it. Uh, it's just because you're lucky. Amen. <laughs> I understand that totally. <laughs> and so it, it was a different scenario because initially we were talking about saving water, saving water, saving water. It's all we talked about. Right. And then one day that went away and there wasn't any more conversation on it. And, you know, we moved on. And, and uh, but, but initially, you know, these unintended consequences and growing through these things and challenging it uh, from the viewpoint of, hey, maybe, maybe this should be different, you know? I mean, so you, so you start, that was always the value in the rangeland that we had in, in this county, because give you an example, the rangeland would have had 100 plus species in it. And one thing I always did, Monty, uh, when I was working with a client and we're conservation planning on his farm, I would always ask him to pick out a field, you know, representative field. Don't give me your worst, don't give me your best. Just give me a representative field. And we would work on that and, and I'd monitor that field. And I would do some analysis and I'd do some soil tests on it. And then we'd make some changes on it and I'd come back and monitor it again. Well, when I'm doing all that, I need a reference. So I'd go to their rangeland and I would take soil testing there. And I would do infiltration in there. And then, you know, you got something to compare it to right on that farm because each farm is so unique. That it's difficult to say, well, 30 miles away by Joe, he had this and you have something else. Whereas when it's, I think each farm needs to kind of be compared to their own environment. And, and so I, I, what I didn't realize at the time, but those soil tests in that native rangeland just taught me so much. And so I would do that at a number of different places. And that always gave me uh, a reference, if you will, for that farm. Next, Dr. Tooker, professor and extension specialist in the Department of Entomology at Pennsylvania State University, discusses his research studying relationships amongst plants, invertebrate herbivores, and natural enemies. He's challenging us to truly observe what's happening not only in, but around our fields, using the power of observation while pausing to explore all of the possible factors affecting our system. Here's Dr. Tooker. So, you know, there's a reason why we started using these insecticides. Um, we had problems with wireworms. We had problems with uh, seed corn maggot. We had all these secondary, right? That's a, a pest. And, you know, I, I remember in, in no-till digging those up and you'd see the, the hole right through a, a seed of corn that was planted in the ground. So how do we, how do we learn to farm without them again? And let's talk about that importance of, of rotation. And, and maybe if a person is in a high value corn bean rotation, how do we maybe induce a rotation with cover crops or, or what are some things that we can do to basically farm without these and not only uh, not farm naked in the case of being in no-till, but also farm with naked seed. What have been some effective things you've seen guys that have, that have seen the aha and they're tired of fighting nature. They want to work with nature. How do you coach them to do that? Well, what I typically do is I encourage them to look at the areas beyond their farm. Just look at the forests um, here in Pennsylvania, 
if you're in in the Midwest, look at the the roadsides where where prairie remnants are um, occurring, and look at those areas and ask yourself, are they decimated by uh, plant feeding insects? And the answer is usually no. So what? So then you ask yourself, what's happening there? Why aren't the forests of Pennsylvania or the prairies of Illinois being decimated by insect pests? And that's because uh, there are things eating other things and the plants have a capacity to defend themselves. So um, using that jumping off point, it usually isn't a stretch to get um, farmers to believe that they could farm that type of interaction in their crop fields. Um, and you just mentioned crop rotation. Crop rotation is a key part of this. Um, the worst insect pest challenges that I've encountered are in continuous corn. When you grow the same thing year after year after year, um, insects and slugs become able to rely on it. Like they, they don't have to guess. They can just, their populations can build. You might knock them back a little bit with an insecticide, but that is a happy place for them to be. Um, so by diversifying, by putting a, a, say, a soybean in that rotation, you make their life a little bit difficult. Um, by putting a wheat in that rotation, you make their life even more difficult. Um, if you had a rotation, a kind of economical rotation that was 10 years long, you would not suffer um, very much from insect and slug pests at all. So the more you diversify, the better, because that rotation is breaking up their life cycle, making their life difficult. By making things more diverse, you also attract more natural enemies. Natural enemies um, come when there's things to eat. So this, this concept can make some uh, farmers uncomfortable, but when you start to farm no-till, um, you tend to have more animals in the field. That's because that stability provides a happy place for slugs, caterpillars, other things. That's kind of a necessary first step to then, then, then make the next trophic level, which is just the next layer up of animals that like to eat things, to make that next trophic level happy. So to have ground beetles, to have spiders abundant in your field, you need to have some level of things that are feeding on plants. It's just how the world works. Like you can't have lions unless you have gazelles and things like that, right? Uh, and that makes some people uncomfortable because as we talked about earlier, there's this instinct that um, let's kill what's in our fields. But diversity and rotations allow more herbivores to be in the field. If you just trust the system, natural enemies will come. And those natural enemies um, are then your allies in pest control. Uh, believe it or not, cover crops make this system work even better because a cover crop is just more habitat in my eyes. Um, so there's more places for natural enemies to forage. There's more places for little insects to be feeding on that cover crop or to be living amongst the roots. And then that's food for natural enemies. So what I encourage farmers to do is look to nature as their guide and then diversify their system as best they can within the confines of the economic production system that they've developed. If they can only be profitable, uh, growing continuous corn, well, there's a burden that comes with that and I can't help that. Then they're gonna be investing a lot in BT corn varieties. They'll probably be investing a lot in insecticides over the top of that seed. And they might be doing other things to help maintain uh, lower insect pest populations. If farmers are willing to um, diversify, including cover crops, then they can get away from that mindset and they can actually start to farm their own, own solution. So I think that's interesting about looking at the cover crops as essentially a food source or a habitat for 
you know, higher level insects that are going to be your, your friends, your predatory insects, predatory mites, uh, lacewings, those kind of things. So we've had really good luck with that in California on almonds. So we work with our growers there. We plant cover crop species in there that attract these things. So we've had first year, you know, farmers go from four miticide applications to maybe one, you know, and then the more you can pull that out of there, then the next year, your populations continue to, to grow. So it's kind of this, um, transition period, right? You, you, you want to, you have to maintain economic viability, but you're trying to do everything you can to not pull that trigger. And then the other thing is it does take a little bit of patience too, because as those beneficial populations are growing, you know, they grow after the pest population grows. So there's, there's a lead lag to it. And, and And you have to be patient enough to not be like, Oh, we're, we're at mite threshold, hit the button. Cause you not only have to scout for, for mites, as an example, you also have to scout for their predators and, and monitor their increase because several times, uh, you know, uh, our, our PCAs there will say, Hey, just wait, just, just wait a few more days and see what happens. And lo and behold, Hey, the predator populations are up. You know, the, the, the pest pressure has leveled and we know when that happens, we're on the, we're going to be on the down curve soon. So it does require exactly. some patience and, and uh, white knuckling, doesn't it, at first? It, it does. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how soil health affects human health. And that's where our guest, Erin Martin of Conscientious Aging Solutions, shares how she's studying the soil health-human health connection. She has a powerful desire to uncover how food plays such a significant role in our aging process. Erin is passionate about soil health and exploring how food is medicine. Her Fresh RX Oklahoma program is successfully helping people struggle with diabetes to source local regeneratively raised food to address their health concerns. Here's Erin. I started really learning about aging and longevity and what the misconceptions were about aging and what we could do about it. And at the same time, I became director of social services over seven affordable housing sites for 62 and older. And that's where I saw in real life, older adults on 15 to 32 prescription drugs. I saw what food they had access to. I saw what services the insurance paid for and didn't pay for. And I am a systems thinker and I watch the money and where it flows. And I saw all the systems and I saw the cracks in those systems and I thought, wow, we could be doing so much better. So I ended up starting to studying the blue zones of the world where people age the longest in the world. I actually traveled to a blue zone in Italy with the University of Southern California at the end of my master's program. And I was studying those things and really looking at the lifestyle of these individuals. And one thing that the blue zones had in common was this local food component. And it really blew my mind that there was Himalayan salt on all the tables, that everyone was drinking out of glass bottles. And I was amazed personally because I'm lactose intolerant and have a gluten sensitivity that I was able to eat full pizzas with no problem. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. What are we doing in the United States? This is really strange. And I just saw all these people that I had revered as a young teenager and thought, wow, we could be preventing so much unnecessary suffering. And it was actually right after that, that I had a mutual friend who was actually the executive director of Kiss the Ground. I was fascinated by her work. 
I didn't have a clue how it was connected to mine, but that's when I asked her if I could be enrolled in the soil advocacy program. And I started studying the science of regenerative farming and soil science and understanding deeply the connection of food as medicine, nutrient density, soil health, and how that deeply impacts whether we have the increase or decrease of chronic conditions in our lifespan and how that incredibly impacts not only the individual, but the family unit, the caregivers, the community and our world and the climate and animal health. And it was this huge ripple effect that I had been searching for because there were all these breakdowns, these cracks in these systems that I had really experienced and seen firsthand. And regenerative farming for the first time gave me hope for the future. And that was really just the beginning. And finally, we wrap up with Dr. Alan Williams, a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Understanding Ag, the Soil Health Academy, and Regenified. Dr. Allen says the very first thing we have to do is transform our minds before we can start transforming our practices. Because if we don't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, we'll be hard-pressed to see success. Here's Dr. Williams. So speaking of farmers, I want to shift the hat here a little bit because you wear a lot of hats, Alan. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your farm. Uh, you're probably, tell us about your farm, your operation, what you do there, and, and how that kind of started and what it's grown into. It's, it's, uh, that's pretty impressive in itself. Well, we are uh, multi-species, multifaceted. So, um, you know, we do uh, cow-calf uh, finishing so we and, and all of that is grass finishing so we do 100% grass fed uh, and do it quite extensively you know at scale uh, we also do pastured pork pastured lamb uh, poultry we do uh, you know egg production on pasture we do broiler production on pasture uh, we also do uh, market gardens you know, producing a lot of different types of vegetables and herbs and things like that, and honey production. Uh, so have a lot of beehives out in, uh, you know, some, some timber recreation, uh, host a lot of workshops, a lot of events. So it's a, it, it's a whole hodgepodge of, of things, and all of them are revenue generators. Um, you know, I, I related that growing up on the family farm, we were very diverse. And yet, and that was in the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, we know the direction agriculture has taken that farmers and ranchers have become highly specialized. And almost everything they do is a monoculture, whether it's a monoculture of animals, just cow, calf, just pigs or whatever on any given acre, right? We're a monoculture of crops, just corn, just beans, just wheat on any given acre. And that's their sole revenue stream per acre. And, and I started on an annual basis and I started looking at that. And I was like, wait a minute, growing up, we always had multiple things utilizing every acre every year. Why did we get away from that? And so we've gone back to that. And so our goal now is to have a minimum of four to six revenue generating streams for every acre every year. And you know what? That is easy to do. It is not hard at all. And by the way, they're all symbiotic. They're all complementary. 
they build on each other. We build biology, diversity, organic matter, and carbon, and revenue a lot faster and a lot better doing this multi-species diverse approach. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. So I've, I've had an opportunity to come to a few of your workshops on, on raising cattle and, and those kind of things. So this corn soybean guy here that just started raising cattle last or five years ago knew nothing, you know, starting out. But, uh, you know, I've really appreciated learning how do you tell the finish on an animal and, and, and those kind of things. So it's, it's been great. But in a little, little passing, uh, I want everyone to know that uh, you're, you're in the live, uh, or excuse me, in the fresh meat market. So that's your primary business and you have a load going every day or every week. You're, you're sending a load off that ranch every week. So, I mean, that's uh, that's an amazing thing to coordinate. What does it take to do all these speed? I mean, that's just the cattle. So if you're doing broilers, you know, you, and, and hogs and sheep and everything else, how much, how big of an army do you have or per eight or people per acre or acres per people to accomplish all this? You know, that's the other huge benefit of this is that compared to all of our neighbors who are much more conventional farmers or ranchers, uh, we actually employ quite a few more people. On average, we employ five to six times more people than any of our neighbors do. And um, we pay them a lot better because we can afford to. Uh, uh, because of our direct marketing and, and our multi-species, multifaceted approach. So we are actually rebuilding the ability to be able to bring people in from rural communities and give them very meaningful work. And that's the other thing that we found that the people that we have, they are outstanding. And they're, they're just regular members of the community. We didn't go way out somewhere to hire people. We're hiring people from within our own community, and they are very, very keenly interested in what they do. They love it, and they're because of that. They're bought in. They're, uh, you know, they're they're ultimately trustworthy, dependable, and we just sort of let them have at it, you know, so to speak. We give them guidance, we give them coaching, but we allow them to be able to develop the best ways for. So we have people that, you know, they specialize in taking care of the poultry operations. And it's amazing what they can come up with if you allow them to. Uh, they can be very ingenious, very innovative. And, and so, you know, we have people that sort of specialize in the different areas, the different facets of what we do. We allow them to do their jobs on a day-in, day-out basis and, and don't micromanage them. And that has worked out very well for us. Uh, so we feel like we are contributing much more readily to revitalize and rebuilding the rural economies 
than conventional farms are doing. And we're offering a lot better career opportunities. So one of the things that often comes up when I'm talking to conventional farmers that have gotten into maybe they're all almonds or they're only a dairy or, you know, the, the corn soybean of the Midwest or, you know, corn wheat of Western Kansas is, okay, this is great. Okay. But uh, it's a lot of work. And how do I make any money from this? You know, this, you know, the region, it sounds really promising, but how do we, how do we make money? How do we make money from this? And uh, um, what's some of your suggestions and how you help people see past the, uh, the pains of the extra work to the, um, yeah, the extra revenue streams, looking at those five, five to six revenue streams per acre per year and, and overcoming that direct marketing challenge. I mean, there's, there's a, the reason the direct marketing is there's no way to preserve that value on a, on a consistent scale across the country, unless you are direct marketing now. Right. So that's, there's a gap there, but um, talk to the farmer that says, yeah, this is all interesting, but how do I make money doing this? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, what I would say is that there, there are a number of different marketing alternatives that you can look at. And, uh, and there's also emerging growing market alternatives that are coming down the pike. Um, but for instance, if you're doing livestock, let's say you're doing, um, you know, pastured pigs, pastured lamb, grass-fed beef, whatever the case may be, or even pasture-raised you know, where you're supplementing with grain on pasture. Uh, there are quite a few branded programs that you can contract with. So you don't necessarily have to be the direct marketer. Uh, you can take them to the point of finish, to the point of harvest, and then market them, at, you know, on a dress weight basis to the branded program. So you do get a premium. Now, do you get as much as if you were to carry it all the way out to retail value? No but it is absolutely a significant premium over the commodity market for any of those species. So, so that exists and that's continuing to grow and the demand for, for those types of producers is continuing to grow. Uh, and you know, if you're a grass fed producer, let's say you're a cow calf, what we're seeing are more and more grass finishers that specialize in just the finishing. On, on pasture and what they're looking for are heavy qualified feeders they don't want to have to buy in four weight five weight six weight calves they want to buy in heavy feeders that are 800 pounds or above and so there's growing opportunity if you're a cow calf producer to keep your calves just a little longer you know on grass get them up to that eight weight or so and then market them for a premium uh, above commodity market to the grass finishers is heavy qualified, you know, uh, grass feeder calves. So there, there's a whole host of these emerging opportunities. The same thing goes for development of feeder pigs, feeder lambs for those finishing on pasture. So there's a, a lot of different ways you can sort of play in this in this sector. Uh, on on the grain side what we're seeing is very rapidly growing opportunity for non-GM crops where you can, you can get a premium for producing and marketing your non-GM crops. And we've got a lot of branded programs that are searching for that. They really want that. And, and they're having difficulty finding enough 
supply enough volume. So those markets are continuing to grow and will continue to grow if, if you're producing grains. So that, that's another sector that you can benefit from without you know, going all the way to retail direct marketing. Now, that being said, uh, if you do want to carry it all the way out to direct marketing, again, uh, pretty much all of us with an understanding ag on our own individual farms, that is exactly what we do. And we have found this to be very rewarding. Uh, it, it's actually not hard in today's world. There, there's a fast growing segment of the consumer population that is willing and searching for, for foodstuffs direct from a farm, direct from a ranch, and are willing to buy them from you on a consistent basis. Uh, for instance, like one of our clients, uh, Seven Sons, the Hits Fields in Roanoke, Indiana, you know, they've grown their customer base to more than 10,000 families <laughs> that they now sell product to on a week-in, week-out basis from a single farm. So, uh, so it's, you know, it's not hard to do. You need an education, just like you would educate yourself in any other endeavor that you would do. And, you know, we offer help in that regard. Uh, Seven Sons offers a lot of help. There's a whole host of educational opportunities to be able to learn how to effectively direct market, to learn about the processing, the cold storage, the packaging, fulfillment, all of those types of things. And what we do is we just simply hire people because you can afford to, okay? You hire people to do this. It's not that you have to do everything you can't. And, and if you think you are, you will fail at one or more of the things you're attempting to do. Uh, you either have to have family members that that is going to be their primary job, okay? Sales, marketing, whatever the case may be, or you've got to hire the people that can get that done. But my point here is that you can afford to do that and you can afford to hire good people and good people make you money. So to summarize that a little bit for the farmer that's saying, how do I, how do I get any, make any money out of regen? First off, um, you're asking the wrong question. I think you, you, um, you can, you know, it's like, yeah, just, just look for it. And I, I think that sometimes it just, oh, it's so, so different thinking that we, we mentally lock up. And like you said, there's more margin in there to have more people. You have to grow beyond yourself as a farmer, especially if you're the farmer who's the owner operator, right? So yes, going from an owner operator to a business owner, that's a big step. And, uh, you know, there's, there's other resources out there. You know, one of my favorite books uh, early, early on was uh, Robert Kiyosaki's book, where he talks about going from an employee to self-employed to business to investor. And uh, I, I think that's a good, just a mindset thing. But bottom line, you're saying today, there is more than ever marketing opportunities to, correct, to connect direct to consumer. It's easier than ever. Uh, we have better technology than ever to do it. Um, so... And finding those other markets, whether it's, you know, a specialty grain or non-GMO, whatever, it's as simple as spend a little time on Google and you can find it, right? So um, bottom line, Alan Williams says, no excuses, get to it. Can I, can I quote you on that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
Well, thanks so much for listening. We hope this podcast reprise encourages you to listen to those full podcasts. It's always great to talk about all things soil health. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.